there are some ideas that are so deep, so profound, so pervasive, that if you truly understand them, they change how you think about virtually everything. The theory of evolution by natural selection is one of those ideas. Last month, we read Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. Even though it was published over 40 years ago, it still stands to this day as one of the best books, in my opinion, for introducing the idea of natural selection and, more importantly, explaining what it really is. You see, evolution is an idea that a lot of people talk about, especially in North America where there's people who deny that evolution is a valid theory of explaining the world. And there are people who vehemently defend evolution. And obviously, I believe that evolution is true, and I think that it's a great scientific theory. But I think more importantly than that is that although there's a lot of debate about people who, quote, believe in it or, quote, don't believe in it, I think there's far fewer people, maybe only a small minority, that truly understand it. And I think reading the book, The Selfish Gene, is really a good introduction to show just what a strange idea it is, but that if you truly grasp it, you see how it explains so much, that there's so little untouched by how much it can explain. Indeed, it's such an abstract idea of such potency that I believe it also has power to explain things that aren't specifically about biology. Now, to say evolution is about biology is uh, sort of an obvious point. However, I think that there's something more abstract under the surface. Now, it's clearly true that uh, understanding biology is where the theory of evolution came about. Obviously, Charles Darwin's book on the origin of the species, it was about animals and plants and where they came to be. However, Richard Dawkins really presents that there is a deeper idea here, a deeper principle. And this deeper principle is not specifically about biology, but it is about replicators. It is about anything that can make copies of itself. And there are some certain, you could say, almost mathematical laws that are very easy to understand, but they have wide-ranging consequences whenever you consider a system that it has a large enough environment that it can have some variety and also make copies of itself. So what is the pattern? So the pattern here is to imagine first an environment or a world where you have something that can make copies of itself. Don't think too hard about what the exact self-replicator is for a second here, although obviously in the biological example, it clearly started with some kind of chemical molecule that happened to have this unique property of making copies of itself. But as we'll talk about later, this idea may apply to things that aren't chemical at all. It may apply to culture. It may apply to ideas. It may apply to software. It may talk about life on other planets that have very different biochemistry. It may talk about things in the future which we are only beginning to understand, such as artificial intelligence. Now imagine for a second that these self-replicators, that they vary in one or more of three principal ways. So you can imagine that they have different longevity. Some replicators are more stable and last longer than others. You can imagine they differ in fecundity, that some replicators replicate themselves more often than others. And finally, they differ in fidelity, meaning that they're able to make more accurate copies of themselves. Now, consider two different replicators. We'll call them A and B. And if you need to visualize something, just imagine perhaps that there's some kind of simple molecule existing in some kind of primordial broth. Now imagine that replicator A is twice as long-lasting as replicator B. What will you expect to happen, all else being equal, with the relative proportion of A and B over time? Well, they both go along their merry way, making copies of themselves. But copies of A last twice as long. They stay longer in the environment. So it is merely a mathematical truth that over time, A is going to build up in the system faster than B is. Now, this is true even though... A's and B's don't really want anything. There's no desire here. There's no identity. They don't have any particular um, consciousness or sentience. There's, there's nothing that of a mind that you can put to these things. This is just simply a mathematical object and a mathematical truth. Consider the same situation except replicator A duplicates itself twice as often or twice as fast as replicator B. Once again, over time, A is going to build up in the system. 
Consider a third situation where replicator A is able to duplicate itself more accurately than replicator B. Let's say that replicator A makes an error only one out of every 100 times and replicator B makes an error one out of every 10 times. What do we expect to happen with the amount of A and B? Here, I think this is quite interesting because if we are considering A to be things that are identical to A, so once it has an error, it's no longer A, it's something different, what's going to happen over time? Well, all else being equal, again, we're assuming that there's no other differences between these copies. A is going to be more numerous in the environment because B is quickly going to devolve into a bunch of different versions that are all random and have differences with them. So these three factors, longevity, fecundity, and fidelity, go a long way of just through these simple mathematical relationships of explaining why these properties will get selected for, meaning that they will become more common uh, in the future evolution of this environment. Now, I think that last one, fidelity, might strike you as a little bit surprising. Certainly, when we first hear about the idea of evolution, it's all about change. It's all about organisms evolving, adapting to survive in new niches or to overcome their competitors. This is how we've understood evolution, and indeed, it's an important part of evolution. So it might seem surprising to say that the replicator that is more faithful, it makes more faithful copies of itself, will last longer. Even though, as I explain it, that's obviously kind of mathematically true that something that makes more exact copies of itself will have more exact copies of itself in the future. However, I think it's important to understand this because when we introduce the analogy of trying to ascribe these things wants, it's very often the case that we think about creatures as wanting to to evolve, that that's something that they strive to do, that human beings want to enter the next phase of their evolution, or that animals are trying to evolve, trying to evolve so they can compete and survive. But really, if we look at this, that's not what they want, if you can describe want or ascribe wanting to them at all. They don't want to evolve. They want to stay the same. They want to make exact copies of themselves for the end of time. It is simply the fact that other things intervene that prevents them from doing this. So this tension between order and chaos I think is very interesting because the way we often think about it is that change is good. Evolution is good. But good for whom? Clearly, in the environment as a whole, we'll see greater complexity. And so from an outsider's perspective, from the God's eye view, so to speak, we might see this as a good thing. Clearly work, very complicated things. So if it was just some simple molecule that could make perfect replicas of itself to the end of time, that wouldn't interest us very much. So clearly we are the beneficiaries of this chaotic trend towards mutations and errors. But from the perspective of the replicators themselves, they do not want to evolve. They do not want to change. They want to stay stable. And I think this is just one of those topsy-turvy ideas that evolution or adaptation or change is something that's being somewhat resisted by the replicators themselves, even if in the long term they are uh, submitted to it and their own survival depends on their past uh, change that occurred before them to the previous generations. So this is the pattern that just if you consider any replicators that are in a sufficiently large environment, they can replicate with su sufficient degrees of freedom and they have some differences, some variety in how long they live, how frequently they are able to reproduce and how faithfully they are able to make copies. We will just see these trends that those traits will be selected for over time. Now, the analogy that works really well for trying to reason about these situations, not maybe in this very simple environment that I've just painted, but in more complex environments where you have more genes and there's more complicated interactions, is that we can leverage the fact that human beings are already fairly good at about thinking about a similar situation, a similar pattern. And this is where we ascribe each of the individual replicators an identity. So we give them a particular identity and we say that they want certain things. So we imagine that they are some kind of intelligent agent that is trying to do what is in its best interest. Now, obviously, this is false. This is not an actual reality. And this analogy has disanalogous parts, which can create confusions if you take it too literally. 
However, as Dawkins explains in The Selfish Gene, there are some surprising benefits to talking in this way, to talking about genes as if they had the capacity for selfishness. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit of a conceit. Obviously, they're not really selfish, but if you think of them as if they are selfish, then you are leveraging that human brain that can think about those kind of situations very clearly and often get the correct answer in a situation where a strictly mathematical analysis might be somewhat confusing or somewhat uh, harder to understand. So very frequently he talks about ascribing these genes certain properties that pretty much only properly belong to larger, more complex organisms such as ourselves or maybe some animals, but that if we think about it in an as-if context, it can be quite useful. Now that you understand the pattern, the idea that there is this sort of abstract mathematical idea that longer living, more fecund, more faithful copying self-replicators that they will tend to be selected for and persist in the environment. And you also understand that there is some convenience for attributing them with certain ideas of selfishness or identity or desires and drives, even though those are not really existing, but they're quite useful for understanding complex situations and making predictions about what we would expect to happen. Now that you understand this pattern, let's try to apply it to the real world. So in the real world, what is the replicator that is of interest, particularly in this case when we're talking about biology? Now, there's a lot of good candidates for it. You might argue that the most obvious candidate is the individual. So you could think about a bird. An individual bird is trying to replicate more birds. A sparrow is trying to make more sparrows like itself. You may go up a level. You may argue that, you know what, what's really getting replicated is the species, so that it is humans replicating humankind and uh, bald eagles furthering the species of bald eagles. However, Dawkins presents a very compelling account that this should not be the level that we primarily think about when we think about self-replicating. Although some of this analogy may also apply those levels, it primarily applies at the level of the individual gene. So what is a gene? Well, gene is a section of DNA, the primarily hereditary molecule that exists within human beings. A gene is an individual component or a chunk of hereditary information. And the exact length of DNA that constitutes a gene or exactly how many proteins is left somewhat ambiguous. That probably has a more important or more specific definition, but for the purposes of uh, Dawkins analysis, a gene is sort of a hereditary atom. It is an individual indivisible unit of hereditary of heredity that gets passed on through individuals. Now, why does it make sense to talk about the selfish gene and not the selfish individual or the selfish species? Why focus on that level of analysis as opposed to individual selection or group selection? Now, in the case of group selection, it's somewhat easy to dismiss. Group selection uh, does not really hold much weight in biology, and as indeed Dawkins says the gene-centered view of evolution is the current orthodoxy, although there is a small minority of defectors. But this is somewhat surprising given how often you see group selection ideas or even maybe not a group selection idea per se, but an idea that is implicitly supported by group selection ideas in the popular discussion of the theory of evolution. And Richard Dawkins is quite critical of these ideas. He argues that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the idea of the selfish gene and the idea of the theory of natural selection. So what is a group selection idea? Well, this is the idea that, let's say, bald eagles are trying to propagate the bald eagle species. Now, you could imagine a situation where a bald eagle is uh, using some resource. Let's say that there's a certain amount of fish that all the bald eagles consume in a certain area. And let's say it's known, or we know from an outside observation standpoint, that if the bald eagles overfish this spot, that their numbers will rapidly plunge and maybe even lead to extinction. So it would be in the best interest of the species of bald eagles to control its population, to not breed too much, not to breed too aggressively, not to overfish the stock, and it can sit in equilibrium with a certain amount of bald eagles. Now, what's the problem with this idea? Doesn't this go with our original pattern of self-replicators that a pattern of a species of bald eagle that lasts longer, won't it survive, and won't we expect species of this nature to exist? Why is this not the case? 
Well, to understand why this argument is flawed, consider for a moment there is a bald eagle that decides to defect. That it has as its property through one of its genes, it has the property that it will consume more than its fair share. Now, because it consumes more of its fair share, it will also produce more bald eagles, and those bald eagles will inherit that greedy tendency, that selfish tendency to overfish the, the stock for bald eagles. The altruist bald eagles, the ones that do for the good of the species, will become less and less numerous because within this bald eagle population, this particular gene for selfishness is going to come to dominate. In other words, if we think about it at the gene level, the gene for this sort of particular selfish behavior, this greediness, is going to become more and more numerous, and the genes for altruistic behavior are going to become less and less over time. So what Richard Dawkins is saying is that although it would be nice to think about group selection ideas, they are inherently unstable. If group selection requires individual sacrifice, they will not last. Now, the situation is a little bit more complicated, but the same sort of idea applies at the individual level. Now, the reason the individual level is not quite as uh, ruthless or not quite as selfish, why there is indeed a lot more cooperation and something resembling self-sacrifice at the individual level, is primarily because in an individual there are only very few cells that actually propagate, only very few individual locations where cells can propagate in sexually reproducing species, namely the sperm and the eggs. So if my muscle cell gets the idea to uh, start replicating itself uh, at the expense of the rest of my body, so there's some gene within that thing, and it becomes, in this case, it's cancer. This is what uh, cancer is, is a sort of defection at the gene level of a certain cell in your body to start multiplying. If this occurs... It will not be propagated onto the rest of the species because it is not, it is solely contained within my body. So because all genes within the body get transmitted through a single bottleneck, this allows for a greater degree of cooperation and coordination, and there is more incentive for the other genes to suppress this natural selfish tendency in their other genes. Indeed, there are specific cancer-suppressing genes in our body that cause them to kill themselves whenever they're in cells that have a gene that goes rogue or a cell that is starting to do this. And they benefit because even if they kill themselves within that particular cell, they will survive in the sperm and eggs and thus be propagated throughout the entire environment at large. So the basic idea here is that the important thing to think about is the role of genes at the level of individual selectors. Richard Dawkins likes to create uh, two different um, levels of analysis. One is the replicators themselves, which in this case are properly viewed as the individual genes, those atoms of heredity. And there are also the vehicles of which we are vehicles. We are vehicles for our genes. Although our genes are inert and not conscious, we are sort of their complicated robots that they have assembled over billions of years to be their survival machines. Whereas you could imagine in the beginning, it might have just been a simple coating of some sort of membrane that protected this replicating machine from the outside environment. Now they exist in extremely complicated and sophisticated replicating machines that exist and persist in the environment. Now, this uh, view of things may create somewhat of a bleak picture. You might be thinking, if the world is a selfish gene, then really it is the Hobbesian world that is nasty, brutish, and short. It is a situation where there is, you know, nothing good. It is simply a strong struggle for survival. And there is a sense in which this does paint that picture, that it is, to use uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, favorite term, it is red in tooth and claw, and that nature does have this sort of self-interested logic to it. And that creates a kind of ruthlessness. However, I think there's something very interesting here, and it's something that would be misinterpreted if you only focused on the title of the book, The Selfish Gene. Because Richard Dawkins says that he could have easily called the book The Altruistic Gene or The Cooperative Gene. Because in this sense, yes, it is true that, uh, that the genes or the self-replicators do have this sort of tendency towards selfishness. But it is also the case that they have a a capacity for cooperation. Now, what do I mean by cooperation? Well, I want to distinguish three words that, although they kind of are being used sort of loosely until now, I think that they have kind of different meanings. 
The first is the difference between selfishness and altruism. So what is the difference between selfishness and altruism? Well, in this view, selfishness is doing something that benefits you. So something that increases your longevity, fecundity, or fidelity is sort of individually selfish. And this really manifests itself in, let's say, our bald eagle example, where you are doing something selfish at the cost of your other fellow species, or presumably your species as well, may be at a disadvantage because of it. That is the selfishness. What is altruism? Well, again, in this altruistic discussion, it is the opposite of that. It is doing something which is not in your benefit, but for the benefit of other replicators or the species or the group level at which you belong. And what we have just shown is that this type of altruistic behavior is not stable. For the same mathematical reasons as we discussed in the pattern, any particular self-replicator that helps a different replicator replicate, but at the cost of its own replicating ability, will over time become less and less in the particular environment. Now, what is cooperation? Cooperation, in my mind, is different. Cooperation is when you benefit yourself, but you benefit yourself by also benefiting another replicator. So both of you working together are able to allow your joint replication to survive better than if you were working on your own. And indeed, this type of selfishness, this cooperative selfishness, is not only uh, not only it exists in nature, but it is everywhere. If we think about the gene as being the individual self-replicating entity, then it is clear that we are not an individual gene. We are not this single unit of selfish replication. We are assemblage of tens of thousands of cooperating genes that through billions of years of evolution have amalgamated together for their mutual survival to help each other out in this way. Now, this isn't altruism. This isn't those genes sacrificing themselves for the good of the other genes. Rather, it's like an individual stone in a bridge would fall down if not for the other stones that hold up the arch. So if arches are good, then similarly, these stones are going to be predisposed to want to be in this particular shape and they are going to cooperate with each other. Similarly, if you have six or seven genes that all produce different stages in a process of producing some useful protein, they will want to exist together. They will want to uh, cooperate and help each other. So I think this idea of selfishness, although it may sound kind of bleak, it does have this silver lining. And the silver lining is just the enormous complexity and power of cooperation. It is selfish. It is not the case that these genes will do something that is not in their own best interest. But rather, if we take too narrow a view of selfishness, or we take the view of selfishness as being anti-cooperative, as it often is colloquially used in human conversation, we will get the wrong idea. One of the most interesting cases of this kind of cooperative behavior is in what Dawkins talks about when he discusses evolutionarily stable strategies or ESSs. And I thought this was a very fascinating idea because this is the basic sense of the idea is that what makes something a good replicator? What allows it to last for a long time? What allows it to replicate more often? What allows it to make more faithful copies of itself? And these things are not absolute. They depend on context. You could imagine one replicator molecule that coats itself in a particular uh, type of membrane that does very well in a watery environment, but when it gets on land, it dries out and it dies. And you could imagine the opposite, something that has a very hard shell that doesn't work very well, it doesn't replicate as fast in the water, but it does a lot better on land. So in this sense, when we're talking about what's good or what is a good uh, replicator, it's extremely context-dependent. Indeed, the whole reason we have the great variety of life that we see out there is because there are many, many different contexts in which replicating machines can exist, and they adapt for those particular niches. Now, one of the things that's an interesting twist here is that the other replicators in their complex assemblages of survival machines that they ride in are also part of that environment. So that means taking the perspective of one gene, everything else including the other genes or the other parts of the environment that belong in the same species that it is a part of, are part of its quote-unquote environment that we have to consider. So a gene that is successful in its environment 
may, because of its own success, create more copies of itself, and that itself is changing its environment. So there is a certain reflexivity to this, which it may sound really confusing, but there is a mathematically tractable way to analyze this. Basically, as a gene replicates more often of itself, it may change the environment that it exists within. And this creates a situation where we may have what are called evolutionarily stable and evolutionarily unstable strategies. So now I want to consider a, a, an example, although this idea is very pervasive and it impacts all sorts of different situations, but one way we could imagine this is to think about aggressiveness. So this is an example Dawkins brings up. Imagine that we have a species that has two different types of genes for controlling its behavior uh, with other species of its own type. One is a, uh, a gene that controls for a fairly hawk-like behavior, that it's very aggressive and it will attack. When other uh, members of its species come to it, it attacks and it always fights to the bitter end. And the other is a gene that provokes dovishness or a kind of cowardliness that runs away from confrontation and always avoids fights. Now you can imagine that different species, again holding different genes, may uh, be in competition for certain resources, that a hawk strategy may be beneficial some of the time. You can imagine a contested resource, say a piece of food, a hawk and a dove come there to fight, the hawk fights, scares the dove away, the hawk gets the food, the hawk wins. Now, hawks also have a disadvantage though. If a hawk encounters another hawk, it may be engaged in a deadly fight that it might lose. So even though it's a, a piece of food that isn't worth very much, by its very aggressive nature, it may fight to the death and it might end up losing in the long run. Now, this is something worth considering because what is the replicator here? Well, the replicator at its very core is a gene for hawkishness or dovishness. Now, what we are talking about in evolutionary stable strategy is that neither the pure dove approach, where all the animals are doves, or the pure hawk approach is stable. Why is that? Well, you could imagine an environment of only doves. So all the animals are very skittish and avoid fighting each other. Because they avoid fighting each other, they uh, will, every time there's a conflict, they will run away. Now, why is this not stable? Well, you can imagine that in this environment, a rare hawk gene comes about. So this gene will allow for hawkish behavior. Well, now, because none of its opponents will ever fight it, it wins every single fight. So it comes to dominate every single resource it encounters. So naturally, it will be more successful and there will be more and more hawks. Just like what we talked about, about the altruistic behavior becoming less and less in the environment over time, there will be more and more hawks. But now there's more hawks. So as there are become more and more hawks, we can consider the opposite situation where an environment of pure hawks, so there are only hawks, now every single fight over every little thing becomes a matter of life and death. Now the dove in this situation is at the advantage. A single dove does run away from every fight, so it never wins any contested resource. But it also avoids the costly life or death fighting that the hawk imbues. And so because of this, because neither the pure hawk nor pure dove strategy is an ESS or an evolutionary stable strategy, what ends up happening is that they will settle upon some ratio of hawks to doves depending on the trade-offs of each of these strategies. Now, this means that in an environment, it may not be the case that one particular strategy dominates over all others. It may be the case that a mixed strategy where you have one gene and also an alternate gene, that they both exist in some relative frequency because of this nature, because of their behavior and how they change in this environment. Now, this idea of an ESS, I think, is very deep. It goes a lot deeper than this. It has to do with also uh, sexual strategies, so how men and women differ or males and females differ within a species. It has to deal with different species altogether. So how different species interact with each other may also form certain situations where there are ESS, where something may work well when it is rare in the environment and it may work poorly when it dominates. Now, why this is interesting in the perspective of cooperation is that in the later part of the book and where he starts to talk about reciprocal altruism, it is clear that what is often stable is a kind of 
what we'll call a nice strategy, a strategy to be somewhat cooperative, but also to have a propensity for justice. So to be not very aggressive, to try not to start fights, to try not to pick too many fights, but at the same time that if someone fights you or someone steps on your turf, to stand your ground. And it's very interesting because this is very often what we see in the animal world, that animals will bluff each other a lot, that they will threaten each other, show that they're willing to fight, but they will very often avoid the deadly and costly fights that uh, over minimal resources. So the discussion of ESSs is quite deep and the actual specific implications are going to really vary on what we're considering. But I think the takeaway idea here is that quite complex uh, behaviors and quite, quite complex systems where you have different types of behaviors coexisting within the same uh, species at any given time, is it is simply not the case that uh, when we think about survival machines and replicators that there will be one replicator to rule them all and it will come to predominate every other type of replicator and indeed there might be variety within a particular species within a particular environment simply because a particular behavior might do well when it is rare in the environment and do less well when it becomes the only thing in the environment or when it comes to predominate. So we talked briefly about cooperation and how cooperation might uh, evolve because it is in the selfish interest of the individual genes to pair together in cooperative units that mutually benefit each other's survival and replication against the background of all the other unrelated survival and replication machines. This is very important for our complex behavior. But is there a type of altruism that does exist? Dawkins already has rejected the idea that there are uh, group altruists, altruists who do things for the benefits of their species or who do things for the benefits of the wider group at large. But could there be other forms of altruism that exist? And indeed, he considers two that are highly likely to exist in the environment. The first is kin selection, and the second is reciprocal altruism. So the kin selection idea is very interesting. So Again, we have to consider that what is being replicated is not the individual, but the gene. And when you have children, through the process of sex, your children each get 50% of your genes and 50% of your partner's genes. Now, because of this uh, mixing together of your genes, it means that from the genes point of view, your children are half you, that you should treat them as they would treat yourself uh, up to this 50% degree. So this is very interesting because the selfish view is that what benefits the individual organism is selfish and what it does for things that are not the individual organism is altruistic. But when we switch to the gene view, which Dawkins argues is the proper way to view things, then it is the case that your body shares 100% of your genes, but it is also true that if you, especially if you know your relatedness with uh, members of your family that they share various degrees of uh, various degrees of relatedness with you. So parents share fifty percent of relatedness with their children. Brothers share fifty percent of their relatedness with sisters. Grandparents share a quarter, and so on and so on. So this can actually create situations that explain some of the most obvious forms of altruism environment, which is parents caring for their young. And what's the logic here? Well, the logic here is that if a parent can, at the cost of its own survival and replicability, increase the survival and replicability of its offspring by twice as much for the same cost, then it should do it. So a parent is usually much larger, much stronger, it is often older, so it has less lifespan to go in its own life for the future. If it can raise two children, and it can give them a better advantage than it can give itself, then from an individual point of view, this might be seen as altruistic, parental altruism, but it might also be uh, selfishly interested from the perspective of the genes. Now, this was something that confused me a lot when I first heard the argument, because you may have heard, well, parents and children share 50% of their genes, okay, but don't human beings share something like 99 point some fraction of our genes, some percentage of our genes with each other? Don't we share something like 97% of our DNA with chimps? So if 
I share 97% of my DNA with chimpanzees, how can it be that I only share 50% of my DNA with my own parents who are clearly a lot more related to me than that? And this is because I think of a bit of a confusion in how biologists often talk about it, that when they talk about heredity, it is more important to focus not on how much of the DNA, if you were to line it up, actually matches, but rather from the perspective of if a rare gene were to come about, what would be the likelihood that that individual gene itself would exist in uh, other copies through your parents or your other family members. So this is a good way to think about it. And I've been told in Richard Huggins' book that the math also applies even if you don't consider rare genes. So don't consider that to be the only situation where this works, but it's easier to understand in that environment. So the way I understood it was, imagine for a second that there is a very rare gene. So something that you know does not exist in much of the environment. And this is probably how most genes start because indeed they start from particular mutation or a particular crossover through sexual uh, recombination. And because of that, there may only be one copy of the gene to start in any individual. Now, suppose you have some children. Now, what the important thing to consider when we're talking about this 50% is what is the chance that your children have that gene? And in this case, the answer is correctly 50%. There's a 50% chance that it was part of the DNA that you contributed to them. And this is the important characteristic when we're considering this uh, behavior of kin altruism. It's not the total amount of line it side by side and how much of it matches DNA that when we consider with the whole species, even though that may be the case. But it is this idea that if there were a rare variation that started with you, what would be the chance it would exist in your children? Or if your children have a particularly rare DNA, what is the chance that you as their parents have it or that their brother and sister has it? Because from the perspective of this rare piece of DNA or this rare gene, that is what matters. So you can imagine a piece of DNA that allows for a general species-level altruism, and it starts off in one individual, but of course it doesn't exist in the entire species. So this type of altruism will, for the same group selection reasons we discussed earlier, tend to fall out of favor, tend to become less and less common. However, we can imagine a, a gene that has a more selective type of altruism, that it says, care for your children, provided that the benefits to them do not uh, exceed provide uh, uh, the benefits to them are not less than twice the cost it is for you to provide that from yourself. Now, in this case, the gene would survive because even though your children are less related to you than you are to you, they are at least half related to you. So if you can provide them twice the benefit, which in the case of an infant or a small child is quite likely, if you can provide them with twice the benefit to their survival at the same cost for you, then you should go about doing that. What's interesting about this is that although the idea of parents caring for their young is quite natural for human beings to think of because it's an instinct for us, that this also applies amongst brothers and sisters. And indeed, one of the interesting discoveries about uh, insect colonies, so in this case, uh, bees and ants and uh, certain types of wasps, that they, because of a unique genetic structure in which males actually have half of the number of chromosomes as females do, because of this interesting genetic structure, female wasps are actually more related to their sister wasps than they would be to their own children. So it's often seen that uh, we imagine we think of a, a queen, a queen bee, and its drone workers. And this implies this idea of this feudal monarchy where there is the queen who gets to reproduce and all the slave servant uh, bee workers that get to do all of the work from her. And we can imagine this is that these bees, individual bees, are self-sacrificing in the benefit of the total hive. But if we look at this in more detail, that's clearly wrong. That what it is, is that in the case of these particular bees and wasps, that because of this unique genetic quirk, it is actually the case that wasps would prefer to have more sisters uh, in the colony, more uh, siblings from their mother than they would to have their own children. So it is not the case that they are being altruistic or for the benefit of the whole hive. They are being very selfishly uh, uh, acting, but in the selfish pursuit of their own genes. So this is something that I think is quite interesting. The kin selection idea implies that certain types of behavior may be beneficial 
provided there's an asymmetry of costs and benefits to your family members. What about a different type of altruism? In this case, we're talking about reciprocal altruism. This is particularly important uh, because reciprocal altruism is everywhere in society. Money is a form of reciprocal altruism. You give me some money for something and I give you something that you actually want. And the money is something that I know, well, I can use this money for uh, using products or services that I would like later. So this is something that I help you. I make some sacrifice of my time and effort or my energy, which even if it's not big, it does lower my survival percentage because if I worked for free constantly, I would probably not be as successful in the environment. But I do this in exchange for you helping me out. Now, how are you able to enforce reciprocal altruism? How are you able to have this kind of self-sacrificing behavior? Well, an easy way is if the exchange of benefits happen at the same time. This is just simple cooperation. If you make some kind of sacrifice, but the other person makes the same kind of sacrifice and it happens at the same time, then all you have to do is just only make that sacrifice when you are also getting the benefit. And if you stop getting the benefit, immediately stop helping and you can just cooperate that way. More interestingly is when the reciprocal altruism happens delayed in time. So one being is helping another being out, but the they don't expect to be helped out in return immediately. So you can imagine grooming behaviors that someone grooms you and you groom it in return. Now it grooms you first. This other creature grooms you first. So you could just be like, well, thanks for the, you know, thanks for picking the parasites out of my hair. I'm I'm off now. I don't really care to help you. Now, how do you make this stable? Because as we talked about in the group selection idea, altruism generally is not stable. So this kind of behavior of just helping out your fellow uh, species is not something that we should expect to persist, despite the fact that it's quite common in real life. Now, the idea here is that in order for it to persist, we need to have a quality of memory. We need to be able to remember individuals and remember cheaters. We need to remember people who were not willing to help us in return. And we need to punish them. Punish them by not helping them in the future if they didn't help us. Or even better, if we can actively uh, cause them some kind of punishment so that we can um, you know, discourage that sort of cheating behavior. Now, this is a very interesting idea because it suggests that there is a type of altruism that's possible, but it requires a more complex cognitive machinery than we were talking about at the level of the individual replicator. Remember, the individual replicator, the gene, is very atomic. It doesn't have a large internal structure. It doesn't have a memory. It doesn't have a consciousness. It doesn't have the ability to hold grudges or do these kinds of things. And it's for this very reason that this type of group altruistic behavior will tend not to persist. However, it does suggest that as we develop more cognitive machinery, we can create incentives so that something that would be individually altruistic can be turned into something that is individually selfish for the person involved. And because it is individually selfish, it is now sustainable. So reciprocal altruism in animals can often be thought of as this simple behavior that you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours later, but if you don't scratch my back later after I scratch yours, I'm not going to help you again in the future. And particularly if the benefit of having my back scratch exceeds the cost of scratching someone else's back, it'll be in everyone's best interest to adopt this kind of reciprocal altruistic behavior. Now, human beings live in more complicated societies. We live in societies where the level of this type of incentive is actually more extensive. We can think about norms, which are things where I don't just punish you individually. I might punish anyone who violates a particular norm. Or you could imagine institutions, which make the idea of reciprocal altruism more broad and more complicated. So really, one of the things that we could say about this book, The Selfish Gene, is that Partially, it is an evolution of taking things which would normally be to the individual's detriment, but if everyone could coordinate and cooperate on it, would be in anyone's benefit. And through more complicated cognitive machinery, turning those individual or so turning those group altruistic goods into individual benefits or selfish benefits. I want to end the discussion for this uh, this month's podcast about the idea that. This concept of evolution natural selection, selection might apply to a lot more than just biology. In particular, one of the final chapters 
of the selfish gene, Richard Dawkins introduces the word meme. Now, you've probably heard the word meme before, used to refer to silly pictures with cats saying, I can has cheeseburger and things of that nature. However, memes were originally in this book a much broader idea. They were the idea of an idea a different type of self-replicator. So the replicator in this case is not made out of DNA, but it is made out of ideas. And the substrate in which it replicates itself is human brains. So that human brains are able to communicate ideas to each other. And it might be just the way that there are selfish genes that propagate themselves at the expense of their owners and that are interested in their own replication. It may be that there are mimetic ideas that have the same property, that because of their ability to last longer, to spread more often, and to be copied more faithfully, that these memes may become cultural objects in the same way that genes accumulate in the environment, not necessarily to the benefit of the species or even the individual, but because of they, they just have these mathematical properties. So Richard Dawkins considers some ideas, for instance, a particular song maybe being a little bit more easy to pronounce than some other variants, and because it's more easy to pronounce, it will persist more in the environment and perhaps ending up replacing the original song. More controversially, Richard Dawkins, I'm sure as many of you know, is quite a staunch atheist and quite contrary to uh, many religions. He believes that faith itself may be a kind of mental parasite, that the idea that you must believe something without evidence and that you have to believe it is a kind of mimetic strength, that to have an idea that it is... uh, morally impermissible to question or that you can't not believe that you have to believe it and that it has in itself a kind of protection against scrutiny might be kind of like a gene that coats itself in a protective coating to keep itself from being destroyed so that it will last longer and can copy itself more faithfully so we can imagine faith in this particular dawkins context to have this ability to uh parasitize the mind of its victim by having this idea which by its very nature is very difficult to discard. Um, Another idea is dogma. So dogma meaning that you have to believe an idea in exactly the orthodox fashion and that to deviate from that again is supposed to have negative consequences. This is analogous to a particular gene having strong self-replicating fidelity, meaning that it must be copied in exactly the same way. So that dogmatic ideas are ideas that pick up the trait of dogmatism as a collection of mimetic uh, ideas, they will tend to last longer and persist in the environment. I'm somewhat persuaded by these ideas. I think that they have uh, some interesting validity. Um, I myself am not religious, but I tend to think that Dawkins tends to give religion somewhat more of a short shrift than maybe it deserves. Religion is so ubiquitous that I think it's probably unlikely that it is simply a short-term mimetic virus that we have all been infected by. Rather, I think it's probably the case that religions have strong individual benefits that allow for them to have greater survival and that this is probably these practical benefits come from uh, only a mild disadvantage from having perhaps mildly untrue elements uh, incorporated with them. Indeed, if you look at some of the evidence, religious people tend to have more children and they tend to live safer and more stable lives. And so this suggests that religion, far from being a meme virus, might be an adaptive tool that, like most other of our memes, has survived because we've genuinely found it to be useful. So I'm less... Uh, I'm less convinced of his idea that there is this in particular is a mimetic virus, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't hold for other ideas. It is certainly possible that aspects of this mimetic virus might apply to all sorts of ideas, that dogmatism or faith or certain types of features may tend to become more prevalent than they actually deserve or that they actually impart fitness on their hosts simply because they have these qualities that make them more likely to spread. I think this is a very interesting idea when we start to consider the future as we go forward, when we think about artificial intelligence. Many people are working on ideas of artificial intelligence safety or the idea of how can you keep uh, the robots from taking over once we invent super intelligent robots. But I think this also should give some caution to that because it's certainly suggestive that any uh, permanently altruistic robot 
that would be in our benefit instead of its own self-replicating benefit is somewhat unstable. So it suggests that either the robots should not be allowed to self-replicate or we can keep them from self-replicating or we need to be very careful because if we start to replicate these highly intelligent entities or replicate these robots, then they will to a certain extent by these same models and patterns become their own masters serving their own agenda the same way that we serve our agenda of our genes. Overall, I believe The Selfish Gene is a profound book that has a lot of ideas. Importantly, it employs a certain rigorous thinking that forces you to rethink some of your explanations for why certain things would persist in the world. Importantly, it overturns many ideas of group selection that animals do things for the benefit of their species and that can have they can have a special type of foresight to look for the good of their own kind and this may invoke a certain type of pessimism but i think it's only by confronting the actual reality that we exist in that we can evolve uh, our own cultural adaptations to it Indeed, the case of reciprocal altruism is positive proof that if you can change the mental calculus, so something that was formerly only for the benefit of the group into a selfish individual benefit, that it can be stable in the long run. And I think that this is exactly what we need to do when we are designing institutions and having debate and dialogue about them. It is indeed something that we need to do when we consider environments with even our own situation where we're coming up with ways of interacting with the people around us, that if we can do things things that generate genuine selfish cooperation rather than self-sacrifice, we will be more successful in creating stable patterns of behavior and institutions in the long run. Continuing this exact idea, for next month, we are going to be reading a very interesting book, The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann. This is a story of two competing visions for the future. One, a technologic a uh, solution to mankind's environmental woes and the other, the idea of uh, reducing our own human uh, instincts so that we can save ourselves. And indeed, this is a very interesting idea in light of this book, and I hope to discuss it in more detail because I believe many of the ideas of the selfish gene and how these might play out in our own human course for survival are very important for the long-term uh, survival of mankind.